Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, entitled The Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles, David Simpson looks at the dynamics that led up to the treaty and asks whether it laid the foundation for the Second World War. In the autumn of 1918, the Central Powers, that alliance of Germany, Austro-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire and Bulgaria began to collapse. On the Western Front, the Allied forces launched the Hundred Days Offensive and decisively defeated the German armies. The Imperial German Navy at Wilhelmshaven mutinied, which prompted the uprisings known as the German Revolution. This revolution brought about the end of the Kaiser and the German Empire. In its place was a democratic republic that hoped to obtain a just peace based on the 14 points. Following negotiations, the Allied powers and Germany signed the armistice on the 11th of November 1918. The terms of the armistice were brutal. Militarily, it made it impossible for Germany to restart the war. Despite the draconian basis of the armistice, Germany had no alternatives other than to accept it and hoped that the forthcoming peace conference would go some way in ameliorating the more brutal aspects of the armistice. And so we move from the trenches of the Western Front to the negotiating tables of Paris. Paris, 1919. For six months, the French capital became the world's capital. For six months, the world's most powerful people met, negotiated and argued. For six months, Paris became the centre of world government. It was six months that changed the world. The statesmen in Paris were faced with not just answering the German question, but what to do with all the central powers. And more importantly, the international order had to be recreated. Expectations were high, too high. All the world converged on Paris. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, they all came, as did several thousand others, ranging from T.E. Lawrence in his flowing Arab headdress, to the economist John Maynard Keynes, and even the future Vietnamese leader, Ho Chi Minh. All the world came, that is, apart from the Bolshevik Russians and the defeated nations. The defeated nations were most conspicuous by their absence. This was not to be a peace by negotiation. The outcome of the conference was not just the Treaty of Versailles, but several treaties with all the defeated powers. It created new organizations and new countries. The world had never seen anything like it before and probably never will again. The war had tumbled governments, tumbled the mighty imperial powers and overturned whole societies. Russia had replaced brutal Tsarism with brutal Bolshevism. Austro-Hungary had vanished. The Ottoman Empire, that perennial sick man of Europe, had given its last death rattle and Imperial Germany had become a republic. Old nations had disappeared. Older nations were reborn. 
while new nations were created. But the Paris Peace Conference also pushed Russia to the sidelines and dismissed the Arabs with disdain. It failed to meet the aspirations of the Jews with tragic consequences. But above all, it failed to prevent another world war. It tried to be fair, but had so many goals that it could never satisfy everyone's hopes and expectations. It had to make defeated countries pay without destroying them. It had to deliver European nationalistic dreams that were impossible in the melting pot of ethnicities that was Central Europe. It had to handle the perceived threat of Bolshevism with no idea with whom it should negotiate. During a bloody Russian civil war, it had no idea who would win. Finally, it had to replace the old world order that had destroyed itself in the cataclysm of war with a new world order based on democracy and reason. Diplomacy was simply never going to be enough. The Paris Peace Conference was a vast, unwieldy event. 30 plus states were represented, each with its entourage of diplomats, advisors, secretaries and hanger-ons. The most significant absentees, apart from the defeated central powers, were the Bolshevik Russians. There were representatives from the white Russians, the anti-Bolsheviks, and interestingly, their main representative was Sergei Sazanov, the former Tsarist foreign secretary, who many historians now see as one of the main instigators of the war. The leaders of all the major allied states attended in person. Only Japan did not send its head of state. Its chief delegate was former Prime Minister Sayonji Kimochi. Japan was eventually frozen out of the main body discussing the terms, as they had little interest in European affairs and pinned their hopes on gaining all of the German territories in the Pacific, as well as legal recognition of racial equality. It also didn't help that Kimochi missed several meetings, as he seemed to suffer from regular bouts of ill health. Discussion of the peace terms were therefore in the hands of four men. British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, US President Thomas Woodrow Wilson, French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, and Italian Premier Vittorio Orlando. They became known as the Big Four, although only three would actually sign the treaty. Orlando took an increasingly back seat before eventually falling foul of the nationalistic focus of Italian politics and was out of office before the treaty was finally signed. The characters of Wilson, Lloyd George and Clemenceau were vastly different, especially those of Wilson and Clemenceau. Wilson rejected the cynicism, self-interest of the European states while espousing liberal policies of democracy for all. He believed in a settlement based on just principles. Future peace would be guaranteed through a League of Nations committed to oppose any act of aggression. Clemenceau, though, thought Wilson impossibly naive, especially in his view of Germany. Clemenceau was steeped in European history and did not believe in a future for Germany ruled by liberal principle, but rather by forceful diplomacy. Fear of Germany had always driven Clemenceau. He had even asked to be buried standing up, facing east, so he could forever guard France's border with Germany. He told Wilson, do not believe the Germans will ever forgive us. They will seek only the chance of revenge. For Clemenceau, Germany had to be permanently incapacitated. An anarchist fired several shots at the car Clemenceau was traveling in. One of the bullets lodged in his ribs and it was deemed too dangerous to remove. 
so it remained with him for the rest of his life. The third member of the triumvirate, David Lloyd George, British Prime Minister, he threaded a path somewhere between Wilson and Clemenceau, especially talking tough in the 1918 general election, where he actively campaigned on the promise to hang the Kaiser, while simultaneously supporting Wilson's vision of a just peace. He also wanted to block the French ambitions to dominate Europe. The Paris Peace Conference formally got underway on the 18th of January 1919 at the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs on the Quai d'Orsay in Paris. This was the location for all the formal meetings. The Palace of Versailles used for the final signing of the treaty. The format for the conference was as chaotic as you can imagine. Each representative in Paris was there to promote their own self-interest and ambitions. The victors expected to be rewarded for their war effort and compensated for their losses. The minor powers attended a weekly plenary conference and discussed issues in a general forum, but made no decisions. They formed 52 separate committees and held 1,646 sessions to prepare reports on topics that range from the treatment of prisoners of war to the maintenance of undersea cables to international aviation. These commissions made various recommendations, many of which were incorporated into the final text of all the peace treaties. Initially, the most important issues of the conference were discussed by a council of 10, consisting of two representatives each from the five principal allied powers, Great Britain, France, the United States, Italy and Japan. But by March, this unwieldy and argumentative process have been replaced in favour of a two-pronged approach. A council of five formed from each country's foreign ministers to discuss minor matters, and a council of four comprising of Lloyd George, Wilson, Clemenceau and Orlando. These four men met in 145 closed sessions to make all the major decisions, which were later ratified by the entire assembly in open meetings. While these statesmen left Paris by the end of June 1919, the work continued for many more months. The bulk of the work, though, was condensed to an hectic 21-month period that resulted in the five separate peace treaties. There is not time to here to discuss the other treaties in detail, but all these treaties were complex, detailed and partially ineffective. The compromises between justice and revenge, idealism and self-interest, left grounds for resentment, fueling hostility and conflict for decades to come. Officially, the Paris Peace Conference came to an end on the 21st of January 1920, with the inaugural General Assembly of the League of Nations. So what actually did the Paris Peace Conference deliver? It created the League of Nations, brought into place the five peace treaties with the defeated enemies. It awarded the German and Ottoman territorial possessions as mandates. Now, mandates are territories where the major powers were supposed to act as disinterested trustees over a region, aiding the native population until they could govern themselves. So totally different from the colonial territories. It imposed reparations on Germany and got the central powers to accept the war guild clause. And finally, it drew new national boundaries that attempted to reflect the forces of nationalism. So much was agreed, 
Well, the areas that were not decided have turned out to be more troubling for the world across the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st centuries. The failure of the Paris Peace Conference to create a properly functioning Middle East or a homeland for the Jews now echoes down the years. Time again precludes me from any detailed narrative of the diplomatic machinations surrounding the Middle Eastern question, but the world has suffered from the failure to resolve this issue. Despite promises to the Arabs for the creation of a greater Syria with its capital in Damascus, the old Ottoman provinces were simply divided between France and Great Britain. The main basis for the division can be traced to the secret Sykes-Picot Agreement in 1916. And while there were some efforts to reconcile the Arabs to these changes, in the end, France received Lebanon and Syria, while Great Britain took Palestine and Iraq. Failure of the Paris Peace Conference to grant a Jewish homeland. The World Zionist Organization submitted a resolution calling for, amongst other things, recognition of the Jewish title to Palestine and the right to create a Jewish homeland. They were to be disappointed. The only thing they were granted was a right to apply for Palestinian citizenship for all Jews living permanently in Palestine. Who knows how the 20th century would have played out if the Middle East and the Jewish homeland questions had been resolved at Paris. The peace treaty dealing with Germany was always going to be the main issue dealt with at the Paris Peace Conference. It is always important to remember that the Treaty of Versailles was not a negotiated peace with agreement from the Germans. Their politicians were not invited to negotiate, were not consulted, and were simply expected to accept the terms. Germany, however, expected a just peace based on Wilson's 14 points. They also were to be disappointed. In part, the reason for this disappointment was ironically Germany's own imposition of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. This ended the war on the Eastern Front, but was harsh in its handling of Russia. Russia lost a huge swathe of territory, people, industrial capacity, natural resources, and also had to pay a large amount of money in reparations. For the Allies, this increased pressure on the politicians to deliver a harsh peace to Germany. Do not forget that many were calling for wide-scale public executions of German political and military leaders, even as late as the December 1918 British general election. So, if the big four of Wilson, Lloyd George, Clemenceau and Orlando were the main arbiters of the final treaty, what were their aims? France wanted revenge. It lost 1.3 million soldiers, including a quarter of all French men aged 18 to 30, as well as the loss of 400,000 civilians. France had also been more physically damaged than any other nation. Their most industrialized region had been systematically destroyed and the source of most coal and iron ore in the northeast of the country had been devastated. In the final days of the war, the German army had deliberately flooded mines, blown up railways, destroyed bridges and factories. France also wanted the return of Alsace-Lorraine, taken by Prussia in 1871, and a national humiliation ever since. Clemenceau intended to ensure the security of France by weakening Germany economically, militarily, territorially, and by supplanting Germany as the leading producer of steel in Europe. Clemenceau told Wilson 
America is far away, protected by the ocean. Not even Napoleon himself could touch England. You are both sheltered. We are not. The French wanted a frontier on the Rhine to protect France from a German invasion and to compensate for the French demographic and economic inferiority. French negotiations also required reparations to make Germany pay for the destruction wrought throughout the war and to decrease German strength. Finally, France, along with the British Dominions and Belgium, opposed mandates and favoured pure annexation of former German colonies. What did Great Britain want? Britain had suffered little land devastation during the war. However, the British wartime coalition was re-elected in a landslide during the so-called Coupon election at the end of 1918, with a policy of squeezing Germany till the pipsqueak and to hand the Kaiser. Public opinion favoured forcing Germany to pay reparations and to be unable to repeat the aggression of 1914. Although those of a more liberal bent shared Wilson's ideal of a peace of reconciliation. In private, Lloyd George opposed revenge and attempted to compromise between Clemenceau and Wilson because he knew Europe would eventually have to reconcile with Germany. Lloyd George wanted terms of reparations that would not cripple the German economy so that Germany would remain a viable economic power and, as importantly, a trading partner. Lloyd George also intended to maintain the centuries-old British foreign policy of maintaining a European balance of power. He wanted to thwart any French attempt to establish itself as the dominant European country. A revived Germany, in his view, would be a counterweight to France and a deterrent to Bolshevik Russia. Another of his aims was to neutralise the German Navy and mercantile fleet so as to keep the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy as the greatest naval powers in the world. Finally, he wanted to dismantle the German colonial empire, with several of its territorial possessions being ceded to Britain and others being established as League of Nations mandates. And what are the United States? Prior to the American entry into the war, Wilson had talked of a peace without victory. This position changed following the US entry into the war. As Wilson spoke of the German aggressors, with whom there could never be any compromised peace. However, it was his own 14 points that were seen by many as the blueprint for any future treaty. While the British and French wanted to largely annex the German colonial empire, Wilson saw that as a violation of the fundamental principle of justice and human rights of the native populations and favoured them having the right of self-determination by the creation of mandates. But he was also a bit of a hypocrite, because in spite of favouring mandates, and in order to ensure that Japan did not refuse to join the League of Nations, Wilson wanted to turn over the former German colony of Tsingtao in China to Japan, rather than return it to Chinese control. He also had to contend with US party politics. In November 1918, the Republican Party won the Senate election by a slim margin. Wilson a Democrat, refused to include any Republicans in the American delegation, making his efforts seem partisan and contributed to a risk of political defeat. And what about Italy? Orlando and his foreign minister, Sidney Sanino, worked primarily to secure the partition of the Habsburg Empire, and their attitude towards Germany was not as hostile as the other major powers. Within the negotiations for the Treaty of Versailles, 
Orlando wanted to obtain permanent membership of Italy on the General Council of the League of Nations and a promised transfer of small pieces of British and French overseas territories, the Italian colonies of Somalia and Libya, respectively. His main territorial aim, however, was to annex the Dalmatian coast. Italian nationalists, however, saw World War I as a pyrrhic victory for what they considered to be little territorial gains. Orlando was ultimately forced to abandon the conference and resign. The frustration of its territorial ambitions fueled discontent in post-war Italy and helped pave the way for the rise of Italian fascism. So if these conflicting aims were what these, the nations wanted, what exactly did the Treaty of Versailles deliver? There are five main terms of the Treaty of Versailles. The establishment of the League of Nations, the reduction in German armed forces, the acceptance of Germany of the War Guild Clause, the acceptance of the central powers of the need to pay reparations, and the reduction in German territories and colonies. But before we get into the details, we must first see how Germany reacted. The Germans had been purposely barred from attending the Paris Peace Conference, but felt confident that they would be presented with a just peace based on Wilson's principles. They were not expecting the terms that were presented to the German envoys. On the 29th of April, the German delegation, under the leadership of the Foreign Minister Ulrich Graf von brockdorf ransau arrived in Paris. On the 7th of May, when faced with the conditions dictated by the victors, including the War Guild Clause, von brockdorf ransau replied to Clemenceau, Wilson and Lloyd George, We know the full brunt of hate that confronts us here. You demand from us to confess we were the only guilty party of war. Such a confession in my mouth would be a lie. Because Germany was not allowed to take part in the negotiations, the German government issued a protest for what it considered to be unfair demands and a violation of honour. Soon afterwards, they withdrew from the proceedings altogether. All of Germany erupted in shock. Many refused to accept that they had been responsible for the outbreak of the war. Many others refused to accept they had even been defeated. Bitterness abounded. Many believed they had been tricked into accepting the armistice based on fair treatment and the 14 points. Germans of all political shades denounced the treaty, particularly the provision that blamed Germany for starting the war as an insult to the nation's honour. They referred to the treaty as the diktat, since its terms were presented to Germany on a take it or leave it basis. The German people bitterly rejected the loss of territory and saw the military limitations as humiliating that would leave them defenceless should France renew hostilities, which was exactly the point as far as the French were concerned. Above all, though, they rejected the war guilt clause. German Chancellor Philipp Scheidemann resigned, as did Foreign Minister von brockdorf ransau rather than sign the treaty, and a new coalition government was formed under Gustav Bauer. The German president, Friedrich Ebert, even asked the German high command if they were able to restart hostilities. The answer was an emphatic no. For Ebert, there was also another deciding factor in signing the treaty. Namely, it was the only way to end the crippling Allied blockade that was causing such hunger, distress and civil unrest across the whole of Germany. And so, with a heavy heart, Ebert authorised the signing of the treaty. 
This decision was wired to Clemenceau just hours before the deadline. The new foreign minister, Hermann Müller, traveled to Versailles to sign the treaty on behalf of Germany. The treaty was signed on the 28th of June, 1919, in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles, exactly five years to the day since the assassin's bullet had set in motion the Great War on the back streets of Sarajevo. It was registered with the Secretariat of the League of Nations and became a legal document enforceable under international law in January 1920. I will now review each of the major terms, including an analysis of how each term played out over the next 20 years. We'll start with the establishment of the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson first set out his vision for a League of Nations in his speech to the US Congress in January 1918, where he promulgated his 14 points. Point 14, in fact, stated that a general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to great and small states alike. Lloyd George and Clemenceau both supported Wilson's idea for an international organization to preserve the future peace, and the League of Nations was seen by many to promise the end to war, a promise not fulfilled. The establishment of the League of Nations was an integral part of the Treaty of Versailles. The covenant of the League of Nations was signed on the 28th of June 1919 as part one of the Treaty of Versailles, not as an afterthought, and it became effective together with the rest of the treaty in January 1920. The first meeting of the Council of the League took place on the 16th of January 1920, and the first meeting of the General Assembly took place in November. First worldwide intergovernmental organization and its headquarters were in Geneva. Its primary goals, as stated in its covenant, were to prevent wars through collective security and disarmament, to settle international disputes through collective negotiation and arbitration, to investigate working conditions, to ensure just treatment of native populations. Other areas included the policing of human and drug trafficking, monitoring the arms trade, reviewing global health, the treatment of prisoners of war, and the protection of minorities in Europe. At its height, around about September 1934 to February 1935, it had 58 members. But even from its inception, there were big issues that the League was unable to tackle. Japan had proposed the inclusion of a racial equality clause in the Covenant. It was not intended to have universal application, but merely to apply to all matters pertaining to the League of Nations. However, it was seen by many to have wider and more far-reaching implications regarding domestic policies and immigration laws. Woodrow Wilson, as conference chairman, and knowing full well the controversy it would raise, ruled that a unanimous vote was required to pass it. On the 11th of April 1919, the Commission held a final session and the racial equality proposal received a majority of votes, but it was not unanimous. The main opponents were Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes and New Zealander William Massey. The Australians in particular had lobbied the British to vote against it, to defend Australia's 
white Australia policy, which Hughes thought erroneously was under threat. But Woodrow Wilson himself, liberal though he was, also knew that he could never get support for the equality clause in the US. He was standing for election again, and he needed the support of California, which feared Japanese and Chinese immigration, and the American Deep South, which feared the rise of their black citizens. The defeat of the proposal influenced Japan's turn from cooperation with the Western powers into more nationalistic and militaristic policies. In compensation, the Japanese were told they could keep Sankau in China, seized from the Germans during the war. This, however, outraged the Chinese, who felt they had gained nothing by supporting the Allied cause, and so both Oriental powers became estranged to the West. As we have seen, perhaps the biggest failure of the League was in not securing fairer treatment for the Arabs and the Jews. The League certainly had it in its powers to intervene, as the mandate were under their auspices, but they simply failed to act. In addition, the League lacked its own armed forces and relied upon the First World War allies to enforce its resolutions. They often did not. Famously, Benito Mussolini once said that the League is very well when sparrows shout, but no good at all when the eagles fall out. How like the United Nations of today. The League proved incapable of preventing aggression by the Axis powers in the 1930s. The invasion of China by Japan, Abyssinia by Italy, and Czechoslovakia by Germany were met with toothless outrage. There are many reasons why the League of Nations failed. Amongst the most important are probably these five. I'll get into the details later as to why the US never joined the League, but this had many implications, not least of which was to ratchet up French fears of German retribution in the future. Germany herself was initially refused membership she had to prove she could act in collaboration with other states and not to act aggressively. This fed into the myth of German humiliation. Equally, the Soviet Union didn't join immediately, and almost as soon as they did, they were expelled over the invasion of Finland. Finally, fascist states in Europe and Asia saw they could simply act with impunity if they subsequently simply withdrew from the covenant. There was no punishment for Germany, Spain, Italy or Japan, despite their aggressive acts through the 1930s. But in the final analysis, for all its good intentions and efforts, the League failed in its primary purpose to prevent a future world war. We're now going to look at the reduction in German armed forces, restricted to a totally volunteer force of 100,000 men, which to modernise still seems a large force but was a massive reduction from the 4.5 million men under arms in November 1918. It was also to be stripped of all tanks and aircraft, and its much vaunted general staff was disbanded, reducing its ability to wage war. Finally, the Rhineland was to become a demilitarised zone. Demilitarised, that is, for Germany, not the Allies, who would occupy it as part of the treaty for 15 years. As for the Navy, that once proud Imperial German Navy was reduced to a mere coastal protection force. The provisions restricted the German Navy to just 15,000 men and no submarines, while the fleet itself was limited to six pre-dreadnought battleships, six light cruisers, 12 destroyers and 12 torpedo boats. Its most modern 74 ships 
were interned at Scapa Flow under the watchful eye of the Royal Navy. Unfortunately, that eye was closed when on the 21st of June 1919, in a final act of bravado, the German fleet was scuttled, leaving many red faces in the Admiralty. German Admiral Ludwig von Reuter decided to sacrifice his fleet. Intervening British ships were able to beach several boats, where 52 of the 74 interned vessels sank. So how successful was the treaty in curbing German military ambitions? The reason for the reduction in German military forces is obvious, but fear of Germany by France was also increased by the failure of the US to join the League of Nations. This led France to maintaining a much larger army than envisioned by the Paris Peace Conference. It was this fear of France that pushed Germany to renege on some of its treaty requirements. Even as early as 1920, the head of the German army clandestinely re-established the general staff. German officials conspired systematically to evade the clauses of the treaty by failing to meet disarmament deadlines, refusing Allied officials access to military facilities and maintaining and hiding weapon production. As the treaty did not ban German companies from producing war material outside of Germany, the company simply moved to the Netherlands, Switzerland and Sweden. Germany also developed weapons inside the Soviet Union through various secret treaties. The Weimar government also covertly funded domestic rearmament programs. By 1925, German companies had begun to design tanks and modern artillery for export, some of which remained in Germany. Production was not the only violation, however. Volunteers were rapidly passed through the army to create a pool of trained reserves and the number of non-commissioned officers, not limited by the treaty, were vastly in excess to the number needed for the size of the army. However, treaty's limits were only exceeded at the margins throughout the 1920s. It was only following the rise of Adolf Hitler that Germany began to massively exceed the treaty military stipulations and its spending on its military rose from 100 million marks to a four-year plan in 1936 to spend 5.4 billion marks. The mighty Germany war machine was reborn. Of the many provisions in the treaty, the most important and controversial required Germany to accept the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage during the war. The other members of the Central Powers also signed treaties containing similar articles. This article, Article 231, later became known as the War Guild Clause. It served as the legal basis to compel Germany to pay reparations for the war. Germans viewed this clause as a national humiliation, forcing them to accept full responsibility for causing the war when they felt other countries were equally culpable. Today, many historians lay equal blame on Russia, but even if this had been the case in 1919, there was simply no Russia with whom to negotiate. The justification for reparations was laid out in Article 231, the War Guild Clause, which stated that the aggression of Germany and her allies had been the sole cause of the war. By the inclusion of the War Guild Clause, Germany and the other Central Powers now became liable to pay reparations. In 1921, the total cost of these was assessed at 132 billion marks, then about 6.6 .6 billion pounds, 
roughly equivalent today of 284 billion pounds. It seemed reasonable to the Allies that the Central Powers had been responsible for the war and should therefore pay for it. Germany itself had set the examples by imposing heavy reparations on France after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871 and Russia as part of the Treaty of brest litovsk in 1918. The figure of 132 billion gold marks was also a compromise between Belgian, British and French demands and assessments of how much the central powers could pay. Furthermore, it was recognised that the central powers could pay little and that the bulk of the burden would fall upon Germany. As a result, the sum was split into different categories, of which Germany was required to only pay 50 billion gold marks, and still 108 billion pounds in today's money. This being the genuine assessment of what Germany could pay and allowed the Allied powers to save face with the public by presenting a higher figure for Germany compared to the rest of the central powers. Furthermore, payments made between 1919 and 1921 were already taken into account, reducing the sum to 41 billion gold marks or 88 billion pounds in today's money. London repayment plan, as it was called, saw Jimmy liable to pay the Allies 4.3 billion pounds per year, plus 26% of the value of all German exports. In order to meet this sum, Germany could pay in either cash or kind. Coal, timber, chemical dyes, pharmaceuticals, livestock, agricultural machinery, construction materials and factory machinery were all acceptable substitutes for hard cash. However, the German economy was so weak that only a small percentage of reparations was ever paid in currency. Nonetheless, even the payment of this small percentage of the original reparations still placed a significant burden on the German economy. Although the causes of the devastating post-war hyperinflation are complex and disputed, Germans blamed the near collapse of their economy on the treaty. And some economists estimated that the reparations accounted for as much as one third of the hyperinflation that saw the price of a loaf of bread rise from 132 marks in 1922 to 200 billion marks in 1923. Think Zimbabwe. In January 1923, French and Belgian forces occupied part of the Ruhr Valley as a reprisal after Germany defaulted on the reparation payments. The German government answered with passive resistance, which meant that coal miners and railway workers refused to obey any instructions by the occupation forces. But the financial consequences of this contributed to German hyperinflation and completely ruined German public finances. Consequently, passive resistance was called off in late 1923. This allowed Germany to undertake a currency review and to negotiate the Dawes Plan, which led to the withdrawal of French and Belgian troops from the Ruhr Valley in 1925. The plan also permitted the reparation payments to be staggered and permitted Germany to take $200 million in loans from America. These loans proved vital in revitalizing German industry in the mid-1920s. But by 1929, it was clear that Germany was not willing to continue even with the Dawes plan. And so a new committee, headed by American financier Owen Young, agreed a new plan. The Young plan 
said the new amount Germany was to pay at 112 billion gold marks, a reduction of 20%, and payment in full was set for 1988. Then the Great Depression hit, and the American banks cancelled the credit that had made the Young Plan feasible. So a final conference was called in Lausanne in 1932, which recognised that Germany was simply unable to continue its reparations payments. Payments were reduced by about 90%, but by then the system had simply collapsed and Germany did not resume payments. It is estimated that Germany had paid approximately 20 billion gold marks by 1932, about 40% of its original total, the bulk of which was paid by loans from US banks, which were then repudiated by Adolf Hitler in 1933. After the Paris Peace Conference, economists, notably John Maynard Keynes, had predicted that the reparation payments were simply too high. Keynes described the treaty as a Carthaginian peace, echoing back to the Third Punic Wars, when Rome had burned Carthage to the ground, sorted its fields and enslaved its population. In particular, Maynard Keynes had said the reparations figure was excessive and counterproductive views that, since then, have been the subject of ongoing debate by historians and economists, and there'll be a little bit more on this later. We now turn to the final terms, which is the reduction in German territories and colonies. The peacemakers of Paris are perceived to have redrawn the map of Europe, but save for the crucial case of Germany, most changes were decided elsewhere. At best, Paris simply conferred official recognition to the real-world situation. Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, the later morphed into Yugoslavia, had already declared their independence. The peacemakers only intervened in the details of borders, and even then they were sometimes ignored. The Allies were committed in principle to national self-determination. But they also had to ensure newly founded Poland and Czechoslovakia were viable states, as well as addressing French security concerns. The result was a series of compromises based on reality rather than fine sounding principles. In total, Germany lost about 10% of its lands, about 12.5% of its population, 16% of its coal fields, and 48% of its industry. In addition, it lost 100% of its colonies. So what were the details? In the Baltic, all of Germany's territorial gains from the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk were reversed. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania became independent states, nervously looking both east and west. Memel, a city in East Prussia, but with a majority Lithuanian population, was placed under the authority of the League of Nations. The League mediated between the Germans and Lithuanians on a local level, helping the power-sharing arrangement to last until, on the 23rd of March 1939, Germany simply annexed Memel from Lithuania. Regarding French security, Clemenceau was convinced that it could only be guaranteed if the French border was pushed forward to the Rhine, but neither Wilson nor Lloyd George would accept widespread French annexation of territory populated by Germans. Instead, it was agreed that the Rhineland would be placed under Allied military occupation for 15 years. The occupying armies consisted of American, Belgian, 
British and French forces, numbering some three quarters of a million men. Meanwhile, German troops were banned from all territory west of the Rhine and within 30 miles east of the Rhine as strategic bridgeheads. Over time, the Allied troops dwindled to under 100,000, and even these troops were withdrawn by 1930. German forces, however, were still forbidden to enter the Rhineland until on the 7th of March 1936, German troops unilaterally entered and remilitarized the Rhineland. Meanwhile, part of the Rhineland, the Saarland, an area rich in coal, will be placed under League of Nations control for 15 years, followed by a plebiscite, but with French control over its large coal deposits. On the 13th of January 1935, so for the 15 years after the, after the signing of the treaty, a plebiscite was held to determine the future of the area. When the votes were cast, 90% voted in favour of reunion with Germany, and so the region returned to German sovereignty. If the British and Americans were unhappy for France to annex the Rhineland, they were more than happy for France to regain Alsace-Lorraine, lost to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871, and a point of contention ever since. The annexation of Alsace-Lorraine by Germany in 1871 was both militarily and ethnically valid. It gave Germany a more defensible border. More importantly, many within the disputed area were German dialect speakers more than they were French. This, however, did not stop it becoming a call to arms for the French. To reclaim their lost province was the basis for the call for la revanche, the revenge, on Germany in 1914. Plebiscites, like those in the Saarland, were also held in Eupen, Malmedy, and other towns on the Belgian-German border. Carried out as a public vote, only 271 of the 34,000 population openly voted to rejoin Germany. The League of Nations allotted these territories to Belgium in 1920, and the new Belgian-German border was recognised by the German government on the 15th of December 1923. As with these Belgian territorial changes, other changes were also subject to plebiscite, including the transfer of part of the region of Schleswig, Denmark. In early 1920, the Schleswig plebiscites were held, resulting in northern Schleswig joining Denmark, while central and southern Schleswig remained in Germany. As with many referendums, this result was bitterly disputed, but despite a constitutional crisis, it came into effect. Perhaps the most contentious border issue, that of establishing the frontier between Poland and Germany. The issue of providing access to the sea for the nascent Polish state proved particularly tricky. When Poland regained its independence after World War I, access to the sea was promised by the Allies on the basis of point 13 of Wilson's 14 points. The Poles wanted the city of Gdansk and its harbours to become part of Poland. However, in the end, since Germans formed 98% of the population, the city was not placed under direct Polish sovereignty. Instead, it became the free city of Danzig, an independent quasi-state under the auspices of the League, with its external affairs largely under Polish control. Without, however, any public vote to legitimise Germany's loss of the city. To make matters worse for the local German population, the strip of land used to allow Poland access to Danzig 
separated East Prussia from the rest of Germany. Further problems were created by transfer of a large ethnically German population in areas of Czechoslovakia. There were no plebiscites in areas that might embarrass the League. The US support for a unity of Czech lands seemed at odds with the concept of ethnic self-determination, as some areas with over 90% ethnic Germans were forced into the Czechoslovakian Republic. The Sudetenland would become infamous in the 1930s as a springboard for Nazi Germany's European expansion. In 1938, Germany took control of the Sudetenland as part of the Munich Agreement and the following year invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. The German-speaking parts of Austria were reduced to the Republic of German Austria in 1918. This Germanic rump of old Austria was also refused permission to merge with Germany as part of the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty then forced German Austria to rename itself as the Republic of Austria. The Austrian Republic lasted until the 12th of March 1938, when German troops crossed into Austria, and the following day Hitler announced the annexation by Germany, also known as the Anschluss. This was met with mass acclaim in Austria. Article 119 of the treaty required Germany to renounce sovereignty over former colonies. And Article 22 converted the territories into League of Nations mandates under the control of Allied states. So, Togoland and German Cameroon were transferred to France. Rwanda Burundi was allocated to Belgium, whereas German Southwest Africa went to South Africa, and the United Kingdom obtained German East Africa and part of West Africa. The treaty also transferred German concessions in Sengtao, China, Japan. This was in compensation for not getting the racial equality clause enshrined in the League of Nations Covenant. Japan was also granted all German possessions in the Pacific north of the equator. Most of those south of the equator went to Australia, while German Samoa was taken by New Zealand. So if those were the main terms of the treaty, what was the contemporary reaction to the treaty? Some thought the treaty was too harsh, others that it was too lenient. Its terms certainly left plenty of potential for future conflicts. What was the British reaction? The delegates of the Commonwealth and British government had mixed thoughts on the treaty, with some seeing the French policy as being greedy and vindictive. Lloyd George, however, believed in the treaty although he also felt that, that the French would keep Europe in a constant state of turmoil by attempting to enforce it. Harold Nicholson wrote, are we making a good peace? While General Jan Smuts wrote, he was unstable and declared, are we in our sober senses or suffering from shell shock? He wanted the Germans not to be made to sign at the point of the bayonet, as he said. Smuts issued a statement condemning the treaty and regretting that the promises of a new international order and a fairer, better world are not written in this treaty. The Treaty of Versailles was, though, an important step in the status of the British dominions under international law. Australia, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa made significant contributions to the British war effort, but as separate countries rather than as British colonies. India also made substantial troop contributions, although under direct British control. The four dominions and India all signed the treaty separately from the United Kingdom. 
a clear recognition by the international community that they were no longer just British colonies, but were founding members of the League of Nations in their own right. Public opinion was on the side of Lloyd George. Many thought it was time to create a land fit for heroes. The newspapers helped as they no longer saw Germany as the bogeyman, but saw the biggest threats to the country coming from Irish nationalism and Bolshevism. Lloyd George himself received a hero's welcome on his return. And in an unprecedented event, even the king came to greet him on his return to London. Asked how he had done at the peace conference, he commented, I think I did as well as might be expected, seated as I was between Jesus Christ, meaning Wilson, and Napoleon Bonaparte, meaning Clemenceau. To many people, Lloyd George had performed admirably compared to other, the other statesmen. But Lloyd George was not a hero for long and was soon out of office as the wartime coalition crumbled and the Conservatives won the 1922 election. What about the French reaction? Initially singing and dancing from a crowd outside the Palace of Versailles, in Paris proper, people rejoiced at the official end of the war, the return of Alsace-Lorraine to France and German agreement to pay reparations. There was public support for all the major terms. But while France ratified the treaty and was active in the League, the jubilant move soon gave way to a, to a political backlash against Clemenceau. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who had been the Allied Supreme Military Commander, declared, this is not a peace, it is an armistice for 20 years. He was wrong by two months. The French right saw the treaty as being too lenient, while the left attacked the treaty and Clemenceau for being too harsh. For many, the main issue was the failure to annex the Rhineland. When Clemenceau stood for elections president of France in January 1920, he was defeated. But what about the United States? After the Versailles Conference, Democratic President Woodrow Wilson claimed, at last the world knows America as the saviour of the world. But if he thought he was going to get a warm welcome back home, he was very much mistaken. There was an overwhelming negative reaction from across the political spectrum and on the streets. The large Germanic population were especially unhappy. They saw the treaty as deeply unfair and they were not alone. Others saw Britain and France benefiting from US support and obtaining huge chunks of new colonial territories, the exact opposite of Wilson's 14 points. The League of Nations came in for a special criticism. Many in the US feared that membership would entangle the US in future foreign wars. After the Senate election in 1918, the Republican Party controlled the US Senate and it proved impossible to build the two-thirds coalition that was needed to pass the treaty. Wilson refused to seek a bipartisan approach. Even though the Republicans controlled the Senate, he refused to consult with senior Republicans and snubbed any attempt to add them to the US delegation. However, the Democrats themselves were split, with representatives of the Irish and German Democrats fiercely opposing the treaty, while others in the Democratic Party were strongly in favour. With ratification looking doomed, President Wilson launched a desperate nationwide speaking tour in the summer of 1919 to refute the objections to both the League and the treaty. Wilson collapsed midway through the tour with a serious stroke.
that effectively ended his presidency. The closest the treaty came to being passed was on the 19th of November 1919, when there was close to a two-thirds majority for an amended treaty. But a now recovered Wilson rejected any compromise, and both the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations were never ratified by Congress. So began a period of isolationism that would only be ended by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the entry of America into another world war in December 1941. Wilson failed to win the Democratic nomination for the 1920 presidential election, but he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in establishing the League of Nations. But finally, what was the Italian reaction? Reaction in Italy to the treaty was extremely negative. The country had suffered high casualties, yet failed to achieve most of its major war goals, notably failing to gain control of the Dalmatian coast. President Wilson rejected Italy's claim for territorial gains based on national self-determination. For their part, Britain and France had been forced in the war's latter stages to divert their own troops to the Italian front to stave off the collapse, were disinclined to support Italy's position at the peace conference. Differences in negotiating strategy between Premier Vittorio Orlando and Foreign Minister Sidney Sonino further undermined Italy's position at the conference. The fact that Orlando could hardly speak English and had to rely on a translator during his Council of Four meetings was exacerbated by the fact that Sonino was half Welsh and so spoke fluent English. Orlando suffered a nervous collapse and at one point walked out of the conference. He lost his position as Prime Minister just a week before the treaty was scheduled to be signed. Anger and dismay over the treaty's provisions helped pave the way for the establishment of Benito Mussolini's dictatorship three years later. I'll now go on to look at some of the economic and historical reactions to the treaty. Not surprisingly, historians and economists' reactions have varied over time. Some believe that the peacemakers did the best they could under impossible circumstances. Others see the treaty as damaging Germany just enough to cause resentment, but leaving Germany just strong enough to seek revenge. As a flavour of these arguments, I have two examples from British sources, one contemporaneous with the signing of the treaty and the other with a more modern outlook. John Maynard Keynes referred to the Treaty of Versailles as a Carthaginian peace, a misguided attempt to destroy Germany on behalf of French revanchism, rather than a peace based on the 14 points. The book had a major impact on colouring the American response to the peace treaty and has also led unfairly to Keynes being associated with the appeasement policy. Keynes believed the sums being asked for Germany in reparations were many times more than it was possible for Germany to pay and that these would produce drastic instability. For many decades, this argument held sway, and it is only recently that economists have disagreed with the stance, arguing that the restriction of Germany to a small army saved it so much money that it could easily afford the reparation payments. It is argued that the real damage done to Germany was self-inflicted, and that it was the massive war debt needed to finance the war that resulted in hyperinflation. In all probability, Germany could have paid either its reparations or its war debt. It simply couldn't pay both. The British historian of modern Germany, Richard J. Evans, wrote that during the war, 
Germany was committed to a program of annexing most of Europe and Africa, any peace treaty that did not leave Germany as the conqueror would have been unacceptable. Short of allowing Germany to keep all the conquests of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, Evans argues that there was nothing that could have been done to persuade the Germans to accept Versailles. He further noted that all the political parties of the Weimar coalition were all equally opposed to Versailles, and it is false to claim, as some historians have done, that opposition to Versailles also equaled opposition to the Weimar Republic. Evans argues that it is untrue that Versailles caused a premature end of the Republic, instead contending that it was the Great Depression of the early 1930s that put an end to German democracy. He also argued that Versailles was not the main cause of National Socialism, and the German economy was only marginally influenced by the impact of reparations. The question that's been asked for the last 100 years, was Germany treated too harshly? Germany themselves never wanted peace talks until they saw they were losing the war. And while they accepted the 14 points in theory, there is some evidence that they never expected them to be implemented in full. The Germans complained about the impact of the treaty on its economy, the loss of its land, some of its population, its coal fields, part of its iron industry, and the huge reparations. But Germany itself had treated Russia far more harshly than that. The huge reparations Germany faced was only 2% of Germany's pre-war GDP, and Germany's GDP was 12% higher in 1929 than it was in 1914. So technically, it was affordable. Germans' massive debt was not due to the reparations, but to the actual cost of the war. And something that is quite often forgotten is that Germany's economic recovery was going very well prior to the crash of 1929. In 1924, as part of the Dawes Plan, Germany had received huge loans, $200 million worth, from the US to help its economy recover. And this had worked amazingly well. Between 1924 and 1929 was a prosperous time for Germany. Its GDP grew faster than France or Britain. And just as an example, Germany's steel production during that period was twice that of the UK. Clemenceau had wanted to return Germany back to pre-Bismarckian days. In other words, breaking up into small states. But Wilson stopped this from happening, so the treaty could have been far harsher. And finally, again, something that is not necessarily thought of very often, but Germany was actually in a superior defensive position following the treaty than she had been in 1914. In 1914, Germany's eastern frontiers had faced Russia and Austria. So therefore, what they now had on their eastern border as Poland and Czechoslovakia were far weaker than Russia and Austria. And therefore, Germany was in a much safer position. In my opinion, what is more important than if the Treaty of Versailles was too harsh is both the perception that it was and the political capital this gave the fascists. The Treaty of Versailles was the great bogeyman that Hitler used to convince the German people that they had been mistreated. The war guilt and reparations were used to show how Germany had been humiliated and economically ruined when in fact Germany had been doing well in the mid-1920s and it was the massive war debt and world depression in 1929 that actually created hyperinflation. The Treaty of Versailles 
while certainly containing elements that could have been written in the 19th century, was actually imbued with the new spirit of the age. Firstly, the League of Nations was at the forefront, not an afterthought, and it was integral to many of the clauses to the treaty, from supervising plebiscites, to governing the Tsar and Danzig, to monitoring the mandates. Failings of the League ought to be put into the context of the gutless United Nations in modern times. Secondly, provisions for an international labour organisation, treaties to protect minorities and a permanent court of justice to try cases of offences against international morality, underlined that there were certain things that all humanity held in common, and that there could be international standards beyond those of mere national interest. It has become commonplace to blame everything that went wrong between 1920 and 1939 on the Treaty of Versailles. Even that formerly august publication, The Economist, in 2000 declared that the final crime of the Great War was the Treaty of Versailles, whose harsh terms would ensure a Second World War. But at any stage throughout the 20 years between June 1919 and September 1939, political leaders, diplomats, soldiers and voters could have gone a different way. If Germany had been left with its old borders in 1919, even if it had retained its old army, and even if it had been merged with Austria, then it is likely Hitler would still have been elected as Chancellor, as it was the Great Depression and how he played the perception of the treaty that brought him to power. He would still have invaded Poland, would still have annexed Czechoslovakia, and would still have wanted to conquer the Soviet Union to create Lebensraum or living room for his Aryan master race. The Paris Peace Conference is not faultless. Peacemakers made many mistakes that caused resentment, especially in the treatment of non-Europeans. While taking pains to create fair borders in Europe, elsewhere they handed out territories to suit the imperial powers. In the handling of the Middle East, it simply either threw people together, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds, or separated them by arbitrary borders. The rise of radical Islam can perhaps be pinned on the failure of the Paris Peace Conference to see the Middle East as anything other than a sandpit of trouble or an oil field to exploit. Things may have been different, and in an alternative universe, it is possible to see how the Treaty of Versailles might have led to a hundred years of peace. But for that to occur, several of the following would have had to have happened. Firstly, if Germany had fought on, as it did in 1945, and Allied troops had taken Berlin in 1919, then the Germans would have had to face the reality of defeat rather than the myth of the stab to the back mythology. If the US had flexed its muscles and taken on its world's policeman role, as it did after World War II, because of Wilson's failure to get the treaty and the League of Nations ratified, the US sunk into isolationism. They could have been the deciding factor in opposing both the rise of fascism and communism. If Britain and France had not been weakened by the war, or if they had been weakened so much that the US had had to step in, both Britain and France, while negatively affected by the war, were able to maintain the pretense of world powers throughout the 1920s and 30s without ever having the ability to create a strong enough balance of power to forestall fascist states and the rise of the Soviet Union. If Austro-Hungary had survived the war long enough to create a viable Central European Federation, 
many of the issues leading to the Second World War can perhaps to have been seen to have started in the vacuum of power created by the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. If Emperor Charles had been able to cling on to power long enough to create a viable Central European Federation, it may well have halted the plans of Germany regarding Austria, Czechoslovakia and Poland. If all the states had accepted the League of Nations with real power and teeth, but even today the United Nations is a paper tiger. And finally, if the Great Depression hadn't happened, we must never forget the role of the Great Depression had in creating the conditions conducive to the rise of the Nazis. There was much to approve and much to regret in both the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles. It is always easy with 2020 hindsight to say what should have been done, but much harder to have found a way of doing it. Empires cannot be broken and new states raised in their place without disturbance. The creation of new boundaries will always create new troubles. Perhaps the best that can be said is that the Treaty of Versailles was the only peace in Paris in 1919. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.